This is Sky Elabar, Big Braden from the Greasy Strangler, and you're listening to Without Your Head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Jim Hosking, the co-writer and director of The Greasy Strangler, a movie that I absolutely loved, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Yeah. So where did the idea for The Greasy Strangler originate? Um, well, I think that uh, I think the sort of original intention was to just write something that was uh, just a really sort of cathartic kind of uh, two fingers or one finger to everything in the whole world and um so i was writing some scripts with my friend toby and i think that we had been trying to write really serious films you know and mm-hmm. showing them to our agent and not really getting anywhere and then we just decided to just do something i mean not that anything that we'd done was at all conventional but we just decided to do something really just to to, just to make each other laugh and um and i think that there's a guy who's in the film who i think you've spoken to you said called carl solomon who yes who i who i kind of had a slight fascination for and so does so does toby who wrote the strangler with me and and i emailed toby and just said we should write a script for carl and I think I think Toby replied just replied he could be a greasy strangler, and then <laughs> and then it was and then I just replied the greasy strangler, and then I think I think within about half an hour we'd kind of emailed each other quite a lot of stuff that ended up being, you know, the sort of like the backbone of the film and just about about his sort of cooking obsessions, how he strangles people, what happens to them, like going to the horror house to sort of watch films with his son and putting loads of grease on his popcorn. And I mean, it's just all this stuff. It kind of just came out very quickly, but, um, yeah, I would just say that when, you know, whenever I'm writing anything, it's not, uh, there's no great sort of strategy or, or end end goal. It's just more like a sort of, uh, Oh, I was going to say a sort of way of pleasuring myself, but that sounds disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really just, it's really just to, to, to keep my interest going. And so I tend to, I get a bit um, bored and a bit sort of frustrated with sort of predictable films and just, I don't know, sort of obviously derivative films or filmmakers whose work I kind of, I can, I can, I can see like how they got there or why they got there. And yeah, so this was, uh, this was just quite different, but also, I, you know, we had showed it to my agent who, who said I can't show this to anyone? It's too um, it's too depraved and disgusting. And and luckily I showed it to um, one of my producers, Andy Stark, who is also Ben Wheatley's producer. And I think that Andy and Andy read it and just loved it and said, "Oh, oh, we should make this." And he had already read about five of my other scripts that he seemed to like, but this this one that I just thought nobody was going to get behind it. Suddenly, a load of people got behind it, and so um, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, that's a very long answer. No, it's great though. But so, how did uh, how did Carl not become the uh, the Greasy Strangler? How did how did Michael uh, Saint Michael's become the Greasy Strangler? 
Well, uh, well, it certainly wasn't for want of trying on Carl's part or on my part. I think I probably had Carl read about ten times as Ronnie, and it was just—it's just one of those things where um, I knew that I wanted Sky to be Brain, and mm-hmm. I just—you know—not to do Carl a disservice. I mean, I think he's just so—I think he's so interesting and watchable and funny. But I just—it was—it was just working on such a kind of um deadpan peculiar level that i just i just wasn't sure that it was going to hold people's interest for a whole film and and i had seen michael st michael's in a casting that i was doing for this film i just shot actually and he came in and read for that film and i and i just found him really i loved his look i found him really interesting like he he just made me laugh a lot and just seemed to not be trying hard to impress me or to sort of get the part. He was just kind of, again, just doing what occurred naturally to him. And, I, and he just lodged in my head. And then I think that when I was thinking of, of who could play Ronnie to, to Sky's Braden, it just suddenly clicked that Michael would be the right choice. And they just, they, they both had this kind of, um, quite sort of sweet, innocent, sort of childlike quality, which was something that I really wanted with the film. I kind of wanted the film to be quite quite sort of lovable and, and innocent and rather like a... I mean, it's kind of almost like a sort of a cartoon or a, or a, or a kid's film, but just where the subject matter's just got gone wrong, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I was just looking... I was just... I just didn't feel like it was going to work with Carl and Sky, really. Yeah. You mentioned uh, have like the childlike quality, and you know there's all this crazy stuff, but you actually really do feel bad for Brayden in a lot of the scenes because uh, he's so innocent and everything. And there's like emotion in the movie besides you know all all, all the madness that's going on. Well, I th- yeah, maybe in a way. I mean, I c- I can't say that I feel particularly sorry for Brayden. I mean, like if uh, if, any- if anybody does, that's that's really that's really nice and really sweet. But I, I suppose just because. Because to me, the film is kind of, I mean, there's definite sort of poignancy in it and, and, and sadness and sweetness, but also just the way that the characters can can um, switch from, you know, being feeling very sad to then just the next minute, like just <laughs> laughing about something or they just they, they can just move on very quickly from one emotion to another. It's kind of like children. Like in my, I think in, in my head and also in Toby's head, when we wrote the scripts, it was rather like, you know, and both of us are parents. It was, it, it was rather like thinking of our children when, when kids are young and they, they can get so upset and really angry. And then they, you know, maybe they even sort of run into a table and, and sort of hurt their legs and they start really crying, but then they see something interesting happening over there. And even while tears are running down their, their <laughs> face, they, so they're suddenly sort of excited and giggling and running over here and running over there. And, um, and I, I sort of felt like that was what I get out of sky when he's being brave in the film is that there is a sort of sadness to it. And, you know, obviously say in the hooty tooty scene and he gets very upset, but then, but then the next minute he's kind of going downstairs to the kitchen and sort of trying to flirt with Janet and telling her about his, you know, his books that he's writing. And I don't know. I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I, I just find him funny. I suppose I, I find, I think that all of them are kind of really uh, quite, selfish um self-centered manip- you know sort of <laughs> i mean brains uh-huh. manipulative but they're just but they're just like they're just completely into their own shit <laughs> mm-hmm. no i mean Janet is completely um completely manipulative yeah. yeah definitely now when i talked to her uh, elizabeth she said that uh, she turned down the movie three times uh, before she took the the part what was it about her that uh made you want her to be uh, janet uh, okay, well, so first of all, I don't, I didn't know that she had turned the film down three times. Oh, okay, that's uh, that's that's news. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to, to break the news. I don't feel like I, I offered it to her four times, so that's yeah. Um, but yeah, I again, I I'm it, it's quite a difficult role to cast 
for Janet because I didn't want Janet to be um, I didn't want her to be like a sort of cliche of a highly sexed manipulative um, female sort of character I didn't want her to be I didn't want her to be obviously um, sexy or sort of uh, just I didn't I, uh, how would I say it? It's like I wanted her to be able to be sexual and to be, um, you know, qu- like sort of quite um, manipulative and provocative, but without being dislikable. And it was important to me that she was kind of uh, fitted in the same world as Ronnie and Brayden, that there was also like a sort of like a lack of guile and, and innocence to her and a um yeah like that sort of childlike quality like when i was thinking about janet at, at the beginning and the kind of images that i was finding like, like I, I put loads and loads of images together to sort of share with the production designer and with the costume designer and with um the the director of photography and and like i was finding old um illustrations by crumb and then old old sort of amateur i suppose they're kind of called readers wives pictures or something in the uk but like the kind of things that used to be in sort of pornographic magazines in the 70s and 80s where people would send in photographs of their girlfriend or their wife sort of trying to look sort of sexy lying down lying down on a sort of you know pretty (laughs) filthy Mm. bed (laughs) some bedroom like wearing strange clothes and I don't know like I kind of wanted it to be sexual and fun and and it was really important to me that Janet was funny and and not just um highly sexed and you know like Mm -hmm. you you had to you have to sort of like her and find her funny but also accept her as as this um yeah, kind of quite sweet sort of character. I don't know. I'm probably not expressing myself very well. But all I can say is that out of everybody that I saw, Liz was the only, the only, the only um, candidate who I thought would would be right for this. She just, she just made it seem fun and funny without it being excruciating or embarrassing. You know, like some of the dialogue that was in the original script, which I did film, because the when I first started editing the film it was about two and a quarter hours long and it was there was loads of dialogue between janet and Braden. i mean there's probably two scenes that were both about 10 minutes long where she was talking in really in in in-depth detail about trying to go to bed with the indian man at the motel and how he couldn't get it up and whatever else and that she had she had sent him out to the to the vending machine to get some paprika ridge chips because she was hungry and because he couldn't, he couldn't have sex with her. And it was, but it was really, really, um, yeah, really sort of protracted convoluted dialogue. And I was, and that was the dialogue that I was doing in the castings. And, and it would just, it was only working with Liz. It was only funny with her. Whereas with other people, it just sort of felt like it was a film. (laughs) I mean, maybe this is how other people feel, but it felt like this was a film made by, Complete maniac. <laughs> uh, is, yeah. is is there a science to the to repetition? Because I think uh, this, the the repetition in the movie it's it's fu- first it's funny, then like you get annoyed by it, and then it keeps going. So then it's a, it's funny again. Well, I mean, it's there's definitely no science to any anything that I'm doing. Uh, I mean, it's all I would say is is I just go with my instinct of what I find funny, and I think that. It just so happens that Toby, who wrote the script with me, and Toby and I both find uh, repetition, and certainly in this script in particular, we just both found it really funny. And I, I, I mean, I don't like. Yes, yeah, some people have said, "Oh, it starts funny, then it gets boring, or it gets annoying, and then it gets funny again." Well, I mean, to me, it's funny. I mean, I actually do find it funny the whole time. But I, <laughs> but that's because I like, I like. Um, I like stuff that's kind of pointless in a way. I like the fact that, that, that some things are made with no agenda other than the sort of pure desire to sort of have fun. And and you see a lot of 
comedies or a lot of films where the comedy does feel like it's very scientific or very calculated. And this, mm-hmm. I wanted this to feel like when I was showing the edit to my producers or, or when the film was finished up, I liked the feeling that people were watching it and not really knowing quite what to think about it. And then I thought, okay, I'm, then I've, I've done what I've set out to do. It's like, I, I wanted the scene, for example, with the, um, with the paprika ridge chips with the Indian guy. And I wanted that to be a hell of a lot longer than that, but I just, I just used everything I had and there was nothing left in the, in the, in the dailies. That was everything. And, and actually at one stage, I mean, I kept making it longer. And I remember Toby who wrote the script with me and Mark, who's the editor were both saying to me, honestly, man, you've got to lose about five of those exchanges. It just goes on too long. You can't, you can't have it going on like that. And I was saying, no, honestly, it's got to go. It should go on much longer than this. I'm really annoyed that I haven't got any more stuff. It's just, if it had gone on and on, I mean, that's what, that's what life is, is like, you know? And I think that people don't often see that in films, but if you, if you think about the conversations that you often have with people, or maybe this is just me, mm-hmm. I have some phenomenally fucking boring, repetitive conversations. <laughs> with people. You know, uh-huh. so, with like with my family and with certain friends of mine where it's just like it's just back and forth boring fucking bullshit and this is and this is what this stuff is and this is true and it's real and it's like you know when you think about a father and a son living together and getting on each other's nerves and not having any other friends apart from some idiot with a cardboard pig nose <laughs> i mean it's like you know, they're going to just have these boring, bloody conversations because they're not intellectuals. They don't watch, you know, amazing uh, four-hour-long Greek art house films and read, you know, philosophy books. They just sit there and talk <laughs> shit to each other. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Oh, anyway, uh, yeah. yeah. I just want to say, I love the cinematography of the movie and, uh, like, how uh, hands-on are you for stuff like that? And in particular, I really like kind of like the reveal shots of Ronnie where, like, it'll be uh, it'll be Janet and Braden will be talking and then the camera will pan up and he was, like, standing over him or when it pans oh, yeah. out and he's in the uh, he's in the room. Yeah, no, I mean, all that is stuff that's, um, that, that's yeah, that we really think about. And I've shot a lot with uh, Morton who who was the uh, DP on this film. So Morten Tedden, he's a Swedish guy with long ginger hair and, and cowboy boots and bell bottoms and lives in Los Angeles. But he, um, yeah, he, I think that he just has a, like a similar feeling to, to me that we like, we like a lot of shots where the, where the camera will sort of move in a certain way and, and, and will, yeah, will maybe reveal certain things. And so, um, actually, in the scene where Brain's talking to Janet in the kitchen, and then the camera it sort of slowly dollies back, and I have got some edits in in the film there, but it, but it did also work as just one one shot dollying back to reveal Ronnie in the in the doorway. I mean, that's just stuff that I like. I like I like um I like watching something, and then and then you realizing during it that actually something else is going on there. But there's a, but it's also just there's something funny within this film, I think, that there's people listening in on other people's kind of quite boring conversations, you know? So, like, when, when Janet is in, in the garden with Braden and, and, he's, um, and he's sort of saying to her, uh, <laughs> my dad just said, uh, he said, my dad said he watched you go pee or whatever else. And, yeah. you know, and then, yeah, and then the camera tilts up and, and then reveals that the dad is apparently naked <laughs> listening to this story looking looking thunderously angry and there's just something about the about the about the smallness of their lives and the claustrophobia of everything that that's all part of the repetition and the just the kind of smallness of stuff um which i i just found really fun and funny so i, I liked that revealing of mm-hmm. you know of say Ronnie in shots and just so much as I like the fact that I'm, I was trying to keep, keep the streets as deserted as possible. I, I just didn't want anyone to be around. I, I, I didn't want any cars to be around, but we couldn't control everything. It was a bit annoying, but I, I wanted it to be like the only people that existed in this place were Ronnie, Braden, Janet, and the poor fuckers who took the disco. To. <laughs> uh-huh. 
And uh, from what I understand, there was a lot of walkouts uh, on the first uh, Sundance screening. So what was that like for you to be to be uh, you know in the audience that people were walking out? Uh, yeah, I don't know how I don't know how many walkouts there were. It sort of felt like I mean, I, there was something quite hellish about that night in that I. I don't know. It was the first screening of my first film. I turned up and then on the sort of like that little red carpet bit where you have your photo taken, suddenly about five of my producers had had put on costumes from the film. So they were all dressed like characters from the film, which was a, a bit of a surprise to me. It was sort of making me feel slightly anxious because I was thinking, I don't really know that I want everyone to know what these costumes look like. <laughs> so I was already feeling kind of rattled then i went into the cinema and i introduced the film and then i tried to find a seat and all all the seats where my cast were and my crew and my producer and everything they were all taken so i had to go and sit on my own to the side and then it felt like everybody who walked out and i would say there's probably only about 10 people who did i mean i could be completely wrong but it felt like they were all sat literally in the seats around me so it felt like it was a very sort of strategic move from a few of them to really kind of put the pressure on me but uh i don't know i don't know that i really cared that much i i felt like the first 15 minutes of watching the film were were really quite tough because i was sort of worried about how it was being received and i could feel all four of my limbs were kind of like shaking a bit. And I was just thinking, God, this is really, really nightmarish. And then after about 20 minutes, I just thought, actually, there's nothing I can do about this now. It's out there. And and then I just started really enjoying the fact that it seemed to be making people uncomfortable, that there were like sort of long, long periods of silence in the audience. Then people would start laughing. and, And I could, and I could tell that people didn't really know what to think of it. And then I started really enjoying myself. And I think, <laughs> I, think I, I was probably laughing more than anyone else in there. I don't know. I have no idea. But. Oh, yeah. You know, the music is just perfect. Uh, how, how did you uh, find the music or did it come to you? How, how did you settle upon it? Uh, well, I approached Andy who made the music. Um, Andy Hung, who's in a band called Fuck Buttons in the UK. Or when I say a band, they're just like a, they're a duo. And um, I just heard some of his solo stuff that I was trying to, to picture. So when I was editing the film, I would use, I would use a couple of Andy's tracks and they just, they just worked really perfectly for the mood of it being like a sort of, almost like a demented cartoon slash sort of video game kind of thing. And I, so I just got in touch with him and, showed him the film. I think the film kind of freaked him out quite a lot. Then I talked to him about it and told him the kind of feeling I wanted from the music. And then in a very short space of time, he started putting these ideas together. And I think the first one that I heard was the, was the sort of theme tune, really, like the first tune that starts up in the film when the, when the title of the film comes up. And it's just a very simple little loop that he had done. And I just thought it was absolutely great and i remember hearing it and just laughing and just thinking wow this is perfect and i told him he said oh yeah i didn't really like that one jim i thought it wasn't very good but i put it down anyway you know and um yeah he just he just completely understood the tone i was going for but i think also just our our characters probably have quite a lot in common in that we're quite you know we're probably quite sort of gentle sensitive people and at the same time sort of twisted weirdos who don't understand why we have the desire to make the stuff we make or whatever uh, uh. that's been said that the potato chip scene is based on something that really happened to you is there anything else uh, little tidbits of the movie that's uh based on any uh, experiences you've had maybe uh hope not like the masturbation or sex scene but uh <laughs> um well, no, I've never mastered it. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> let me think. Uh, yeah, the potato scene—that's true. Um, I'm trying to think about anything else. Uh, anything else that's really happened to me? Um, gosh, I mean, I can't—I can't think off the top of my head of anything else that I've actually, you know, directly kind of taken, but. Um, I would say that the, the, there are certain things in it that feel like they're kind of a, sort of inspired a little bit by by um, vague childhood memories of 
I don't know, just sort of hanging around at home and with my family and sort of just people generally kind of being naked at home, <laughs> sharing, sharing the bathroom. And I don't know, like I remember my dad would sort of, I mean, my, my parents weren't together, but I'd go and stay with my dad and sometimes I'd look down the, the corridor and I'd see him in the bathroom brushing his teeth, having a, having a piss at the same time. And, <laughs> completely naked and then and thinking that was totally normal and actually i remember when i was editing editing the strangler and um mark who cut the film was really laughing about the shot where janet's going for a pee and you're looking through ronnie's legs and you can see the tip of his dong sort of sticking <laughs> to the frame and, and he was like mark's australian and he was like dude this is really weird man and i was i was looking at it and thinking i don't know it looks totally normal to me this is what i remember my family like. and i thought actually maybe i just am not a very good judge of what's you know what's uh appropriate or uh, or whatever yeah. plus your father must have been very well endowed if it was uh... he had very low slung ball <laughs> yeah that, um yeah i was gonna say that actually reminds me of my grandfather but it was more of a <laughs> yeah. yeah well my dad <laughs> 73 when I was born. Oh, wow. Yeah. And awesome. Oddly enough, I, I didn't know this. Uh, I actually watched the movie with my mom, and uh, she said that our, our her father, my grandfather, used to say uh, bullshit artist all the time. Oh, really? So, yeah. And uh, I had actually never really heard that phrase before. Sky? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I sort of. Um, it was a phrase that we always used as kids here in, in England. And I don't know, I didn't know whether it existed or not in the US, but I guess, I mean, because people have been calling Trump a bullshit artist, haven't they? I don't know, I don't think that's anything to do with this film, but if it is, I can <laughs> it. But, but I, I just presume that it did exist in the States as well, but I'm, I don't know. Yeah. Well, Sky said that he said it a lot in uh, Pennsylvania. And my grandfather was from Pennsylvania, so maybe that's the connection. Oh, okay, so maybe it is, yeah. Maybe it's a. Maybe it's a Pennsylvania thing. Yeah, you know why? Why did the why? Why does Oinker have a pig nose? Besides his name being Oinker, I guess he'd have to have a pig nose. Well, I can tell you, it's not a it's not a particularly fascinating story, but it'll show the way it'll show the way that our minds work. I think, and that I was I was um, making some sort of quite strange. I make commercials once in a while. I mean, I don't do them very often because the ones that I do sort of tend to be a little bit odd, and then and freak the client out or whatever. But I did, I was doing some in, in Australia and this guy came into the casting who made me laugh so much that I sent Toby, this was before we had written the greasy strangler, actually, this was probably like four years ago. And I sent Toby a clip of this guy and we, we started calling him the pig chuckler because he kind of, he kind of, looked a bit like a pig and chuckled the whole time. And, um, and so when we were, when we came up with the Oinka character, I think we both just thought, Oh, he should be that Australian guy from that casting. I should try and cast him, that guy that I saw four years ago. And, and then I think just because he, that guy had a face that was like a pig, we decided to call him Oinka and give him a pig's nose. And actually, um, the commercial that I was doing in Australia at the time was all about renting things. And so that's why I ended up putting in that line about Oinka saying that he was renting his shoes. It was a bit of a, <laughs> it was just uh -huh. a bit of, a bit of an in, in joke to myself, but, um, but yeah, so there was no great logic behind it. Yeah. By the way, the, when the scene about going to the horror house, uh, I can relate to cause many times I'll tell people I'm going to a horror convention and they think I'm mean, talking about totally something totally different. Yeah, yeah. This like, I know you're a shady guy, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know you were you were quite like that. But uh. well, I, yeah, that I, I found that a little frustrating because I didn't realize that when Americans said horror, that it ended up sounding like whore. And so when we were <laughs> shooting it, I was saying to all of them, "Could you try and say it more like horror?" And, no, and none of them could say it any other way than horror. Like that, so just, I just thought, oh fucking hell, man, this doesn't work at all. But actually, people work. Yeah. Quite funny that it was like they're all going to the whorehouse and then they're going to the house. Yeah, yeah, it totally worked. And I heard there's a two-hour version coming out. No, I don't. I don't think that's true. Oh. That um, there is a. I've got a two-hour, fifteen-minute edit of it, but I don't think it's going to come out. But whether 
I know there's a new Australian DVD. I don't know if there's any deleted scenes on it or not. Maybe there are on the American one. I've no idea. But I don't think... I mean, I'd be quite happy to put it out, but it would take... It would it would probably cost about, you know, $5,000 or something to, to colour the picture and to mix it and do whatever else. So, I don't know. Unless there's some amazing benefactor who wants to give me some money and then I can put out <laughs> put out the definitive version of this film that will really drive absolutely everybody apocalyptically crazy um, uh, yeah yeah what is there any was there any particular scenes that you had to like really fight to keep in I know you mentioned uh, a couple already but well I, I, I didn't have to fight to keep any in because I had I had final cut but I did okay. have I had probably seven or eight producers and I probably had about five of them and I don't think any of them would mind me saying it. I, I probably had about five of them who, who desperately didn't like, um, the hot dog salesman who keeps going on about how he could lose his license. Um, uh-huh. they also, who is now that guy's actually passed away now. So. Yeah. I heard about that. It's too bad. Um, and I know that a couple of my producers hated, <laughs> um, the Jody character. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there were things I didn't have to fight to keep anything in, but I definitely had to disregard a lot of you know <laughs> counsel that I had. And actually, I I do look back and I feel like I maybe I maybe crapped out a little bit with a couple of things. Like there was with the sex scene between Janet and Braden, the first one where he's saying, I don't know if I'm doing it right. <laughs> I mean, that scene was originally about four times longer with like loads more stuff in it. And it was, and at the time when I first, the thing is, is that when I first watched the cut back and, you know, you put all these scenes together individually and you think, Oh, this is working really well. This is working really well. I'm so excited or whatever, but you don't see it as one big sequence and you don't, you don't get that cumulative effect, which can be, you know, astonishingly unnerving and jarring. And when I first saw it back, I ended up within about half an hour, I had my head in my hands, just feeling like, what the hell have I done? I can't show this to anybody. This is completely demented. It's like it's been made by someone with terrible mental problems. <laughs> Honestly, it was like, why? What have I? What is wrong with me? that I've had to make this film that's just like so obsessed with sex and cocks and like shagging and wanking and like, and I, I was just thinking like that, this is just completely fucked up and I can't, I can't show this to anyone, but I told everybody that I'm making a film. So what am I going to do? And anyway, so I, I kind of ended up um, trimming, trimming quite a bit of the, sexual stuff out so it's funny to me that when people say oh oh liz's performance is so brave or michael's performance is so brave or the film's so disturbing or whatever it's like well a the film's not disturbing unless you're really fucking sheltered and boring (laughs) but also it's like it's it's so tame compared to where it was at once (laughs) but Uh but no but i think it works in a tighter fashion now i think there's just there's only so much of, of this kind of thing that I think you can take before your brain feels like it's sort of spasming in a, in a, <laughs> in a, in, in a bad way. And I think I kind of, I managed to stretch it to the point where you probably couldn't go, probably couldn't take much more. And so I think that it was, it was good to cut some stuff, but yeah. Yeah. What is it about Sky Yellow Bar that, uh, that you like so much in your work? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I don't, yeah, I, I mean, uh, well, I find him, um, I don't know. I think there's a, there's a sort of a mixture of maybe I can't quite work him out is one thing that I, that I like. I like the, I like the fact that, I don't know, I can meet certain Americans and I have no, context for them i when i meet british people i can pretty quickly understand you know where they're from or what kind of effect they're sort of intending like if they're contrived or if they're genuine or whatever but i can meet someone like sky and i just don't know if he's 
normal for where he's from or if he's eccentric or if he's, you know, whatever. But I, but I also like his, his ability to play sort of peculiar, he can, he can play peculiar dialogue or situations in a, in a very sincere, straight way. And that's just something that really appeals to me. And he just makes me laugh and and i and i like him a lot i don't know i i um i i think i like people who who don't quite fit into any sort of categorizable box and and that's where i feel comfortable and i just i suppose i always felt comfortable around sky and around like other you know some other people who i cast who just feel like they're individuals and and i just feel like i understand them maybe i i feel like i understand i understand them or something better than i do people who seem more normal or straightforward or i don't know mm. i mean i don't know if that makes any sense but it's just um I, I mean i've had like journalists saying to me after meeting me like um oh you're the last person that i would have expected to make the greasy strangler but then i think well there's obviously a big gap between, you know, how I feel on the inside and how I may present myself on the outside or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, how do you uh, go about choosing the wardrobes? Uh, uh, well, you mean like how did, where did the ideas come from or yeah, what? you know, cause there's this very peculiar uh, dress throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, well, I never wanted it to be like the real world or like the contemporary world or anything. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be its own little universe. Um, and, um, Christina Blackadder, who, who did the costumes. I've worked with her a lot. And I think we just, we, we both probably derive a lot of pleasure from similar kinds of sort of colors and fabrics and, and, um, and I'm sort of, I'm, I'm probably very inspired by, um, clothes from, yeah, from different, like other sort of countries and other places. And, I just wanted it to feel like the way that they all dressed, you felt like they didn't really, they couldn't really be a part of the world at large. They couldn't really know many other people. They couldn't be um, socially acceptable or accepted. They, um, it just had to sort of communicate a lot instantly. And so with the clothes that they were wearing for the disco tour. I mean, you know, you think of disco music and I sort of wanted it to have a, like a, like a kind of a vibrancy to it or a, like a, like a vivid optimistic color, but I also wanted it to be, um, to sort of feel slightly wrong and to feel a little bit uncomfortable maybe for, some people um so the sleeves being slightly the wrong length of you know the 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 sweaters have got the sort of horrible necks on them the the shorts are made of soft kind of almost i don't know like is it it's kind of almost like knitted almost slightly athletic but not really it's like the kind of stuff that maybe you know your grandfather might have been looking for in a thrift in a thrift store in 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 some, you know, godforsaken town in 1972. I mean, I don't know. It's a, but it's a very instinctive thing. So I, I'll just, um, for example, with Ronnie's disco costume, I had spoken to Christina about it maybe being a jumpsuit, like a totally transparent jumpsuit. So, you know, when you think of like Barbarella and she's got those panels in her clothes where you can see uh-huh. You can see her boobs or whatever, but I, I wanted him to wear this totally transparent thing. But then we gradually decided that it would be nice if he if he did have a have a jumpsuit, but with a 
with a kind of mesh window in it that was, and I think I, yeah, so I said like it could be like a diamond thing and it's a very precise shape and then it had like a sort of gold mesh panel over so you could see into it, but it was sort of detailed and I don't know, just something that felt kind of special and <clears throat> quite beautiful and quite exotic, but also it's, you know, it's quite, quite base and, and uh, peculiar. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't really, I don't really um, strategize much. I just go with a feeling. Mm-hmm. I also like the because you mentioned about being like uh, its own little world, uh, the fake money. Because when you especially they use it twice. Because I think in the first scene you might think he's just giving uh, Big Paul like fake money because he's blind and he's not going to tell the difference. But then he 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 has it again for the hot dog vendor. Yeah, and, and then so, he realizes he's a he's just a bastard. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, um, <clears throat> I think that's just an example of uh, any little detail that you're thinking of. You just sort of think, well, is there a, is there a more interesting way of doing this? Is there something that just <clears throat> feels a bit funnier, you know? And it's like, it was, it definitely came from the fact that he was cheating Paul, yeah, but, uh, <clears throat> but then I, yeah, then I sort of extended it to when he was paying for the hot dogs, but also when he was paying Paul, it suddenly, I mean, it's one of those things that when you're filming, you suddenly realize things that are like, oh shit, where's he going to put, where's he going to have the money? Cause he's just come through the car wash. He can't <laughs> have it in his hand because it would have got really wet and whatever else. And so then, you know, then it occurred to me, oh, I think he has to park it up his bum cheeks. You know, that's the only place that he could have it. So <clears throat> there's just stuff that happens, you know? Yeah. And uh, the very ending, you don't spoil the movie, but I think it kind of leaves it up for interpretation, I think, for, for whoever's watching it. Yeah. Uh, uh, was that what you're going for? Because it's, it's a, you know, the, the end is, the whole movie's weird, but the end specifically is, uh, is very out there. Um, was I going for what to totally confuse people, or just to, to leave it up to, to people's imagination or interpretation of of what the ending means? Well, I mean that's what I wanted the whole film to be like, really. Um, but with the ending, uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean actually, there's a very specific logic to it to me. I wouldn't have written it otherwise, um, mm-hmm. but I certainly didn't feel any need for it to be spell out any any more than it is i mean i think you just watch something and then you you know you can have your own interpretation for sure <clears throat> and i've been asked a number of times at q and a's or whatever about it and i don't know i mean i don't i'm not looking to i don't go and watch someone else's film and then want the filmmaker to explain i don't want david lynch to explain to me what sure. Mulholland drives about i just want to feel something and then it take me somewhere in the same way that when i listen to any number of my favorite songs, I'm not expecting the lyrics to tell, to tell a linear story. It's more like the words can sound a certain way and make me feel a certain thing. And that's just what I like. Mm-hmm. I do too. I actually, that's what I like about it. It's not, it's not spelling it out for you. It's uh, you watch yeah. and you take whatever you want from it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what's uh, the reception been like? Cause, uh, for me, I've been talking about the movie a lot on the show. And I get one one of two things: either uh, people love it like I do, or they just like, or what is wrong with you? You know, I can watch this movie. No one's like, it's okay, or it's eh. You know, it's either love or just yeah. total hatred. Well, I think that um, what it seems to me is that I think there are people who <clears throat> who like stuff existing in life that feels new and or new might be the wrong word i'm not really thinking it through but what, what i mean is like some people like when something comes along and they didn't see it coming and it feels different and it makes them think in a different way <clears throat> and then they can find that exciting and then other people when something comes along and it's and they don't understand it or they don't know why it exists and then they just feel annoyed by it and that's probably their own frustrations with themselves or their lives or their upbringing or whatever. I don't know. I mean, all I can think is that I like, I like seeing stuff 
and feeling like, oh, fuck, I didn't see that coming. That's That feels different. That feels interesting. Oh, I wonder what he's meaning with that. Like, you know, like I love, um, there's like a Thai filmmaker who made the film Uncle Boomy. <clears throat> I can't remember the full title, but his last film was Cemetery of Splendor. But Uncle Boomy, I thought, was a one of the, just a really brilliant film. And, you know, like it, you, can, you can watch something that's very dreamlike and... And have your own interpretation of it. And uh, I mean, I just, yeah, I don't know. It's like some people were probably really angered by punk rock coming along, and then other people thought it was really great. I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying this is punk, but I'm just saying it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's very know. original. Well, I mean, it's just, it's just, it clearly doesn't really. It's not looking for you to like it. I mean, it's not like <clears throat> I didn't make the film thinking that I had any idea how people would react to it. I made it because I knew <clears throat> I knew that I would enjoy seeing it. And that's all, you know, and that's all I tried to do. Mm -hmm. and, uh, my friend and co-host on the show, Annabelle Lecter, who uh, can't be here right now, but uh, she said, uh, we watched it together uh, recently, and she said that it's going to be our new test for people. If they don't like the greasy strangle, we just can't be friends with them. <laughs> that's, that's funny, yeah. I mean, I sometimes feel like that about um, <clears throat> certain things like, you know, if you hear that somebody likes Coldplay, then you think you can't speak to them. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, what, what do you have coming out next? What are you working on now? Uh, well, I just shot another film, and I'm editing that right now. And then after that, I'm doing a little TV pilot thing in the US, um, <clears throat> which I wrote with Toby, who I wrote The Strangle with. And that's going to be a pretty crazy thing, I think. Pretty odd. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, doing different things. I'm sort of loath to say too much about them because, because I keep it, uh, keep it mysterious. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And honestly, after I watched Greasy Strangler, I went and watched all your shorts and some of your uh, your commercials because I love the movie so much. And uh, yeah, your stuff follows a similar, you know, vibe, sense of humor, and yeah. all very, you know, quirky and stuff. And uh, I really love your work. Oh, thanks, Neil. I mean, I think there is something, <clears throat> there's a through line probably in the stuff I do. And I don't really know, I don't know quite what it is other than the stuff I do tends to end up feeling like only I could have made it. And I don't know what that is, whether it's, yeah, it's all the little choices, I suppose. But I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely a, a certain kind of thing that I find funny, but I don't really, I don't analyze it too much for fear of, I don't know, <laughs> losing my, lo losing my way a bit. But um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me today, and I know it's uh, it's longer than the 15 minutes we uh, agreed on. Oh, no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. That was an arbitrary, um, I arbitrary see. time time. Limit. Okay. Very cool. Well, uh, yeah. You as well. That, honestly, uh, I was when I first heard of the movie, the, you know, people have been listening to the show for a long time. Uh, I was like, the greasy strangler, it just sounds like something I'm going to love. And I, I just figured I'd be let down. But, uh, from, from name to movie, I was not let down. It lived up to the expectations of the name Greasy Strangler. Good. There we go. Yes. Excellent. Good. Good. I'm glad about that. Not everybody would agree with you. No, they they, they don't. But uh, <laughs> much like you, I don't I don't really care. But uh, yeah, exactly. thanks for coming on. Yeah. Okay, man. Bye.